0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Agree to Disagree from Intelligence Squared. I'm John Donvan. And for the debate we're about to have, we are going to look up. We're going to look up and ponder the possibility that up above us, up and out, beyond the clouds and the moon and the sun and our solar system that there is other life out there and that it is intelligent life. And what we're going to debate is whether we should be investing energy and money and time in trying to discover that life, which in fact is something that's already happening. The search is on. And in the course of this program, we hope to learn the odds that there are extraterrestrials with intelligence out there. And we hope to learn the pros and the cons of looking for them and the pros and cons of actually finding them. Here's how we are framing the question. Quite simply, should we search for life in space? We are going to hear two answers to that question a yes and a no, courtesy of two experts. Jill Cornell Tarter is an astronomer best known for her work on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and a co founder and former director of the Center for SETI Research. Paul M. Sutter is an astrophysicist at the Flatiron Institute. Jill and Paul, thanks so much for joining us on Agree to Disagree.
0: Well, thanks so much for having us and for this topic. And
1: I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. Okay, so Jill Tartar, you go first. On the question, should we search for life in space? Are you a yes or are you a no?
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Okay, Paul Sutter, that means you're the no, but make it clear to us so we can make it official. On the question of should we search for life in space, are you a yes or a no?
2: I am a no because I believe it is not a very fruitful question to ask.
1: All right, an interesting starting point. So Jill, you got off to a fast start in telling us about your enthusiasm for the, for the search for intelligent life in space, but take a few minutes now and tell us why you're so passionate about the search.
0: I think at this particular time in our history on this planet, It's very, very important to uh, encourage people to have a cosmic perspective. And I think there's nothing that does that more than thinking about life beyond Earth and intelligent life beyond Earth. And why is a cosmic perspective um, necessity? It's because we have all of these challenges on this planet with respect to having a long future um, food insecurity, water insecurity, all kinds of political and um, you know even war-like uh, differences, and we're not going to be able to solve these challenges as nation states. We're going to have to have a global cooperative consensus about how to deal with these challenges, and I think that when we talk about life beyond earth, particularly intelligent life, we're in fact holding up a mirror to all the people in the conversation. And that mirror shows us not that we are all different, but that we are really all fundamentally earthlings. And we need this cosmic perspective to make us act like earthlings to cooperate in ways that we have traditionally not
1: done. All right. A very interesting case made about perspective, cosmic perspective being involved in a benefit of searching for life out there beyond the stars. Paul Sutter, you are a no on the question of whether we should be searching for intelligent life in space. Why are you a no?
2: I'd like to start off by saying I am a cosmologist and I wholeheartedly agree with Doctor Tartar's uh, statement that we should have a cosmic perspective, that we should look bigger than the Earth, we should look uh, through the lens that we are one tiny little planet clinging to the life, of, you know, in the habitable zone of a star. Uh, that we should come together to solve our problems that face us as as a global community. Uh, problems like climate change, and that we need to cooperate, we need to invest in a long-term future. And, and so that was very beautifully put, and I completely agree. I don't know, however, if the search for extraterrestrial life uh, speaks directly or in isolation to those problems. Uh, there are other questions we can ask that offer us that cosmic perspective. We can investigate the origins of the solar system. We can investigate and search for non-intelligent life. We can study the the Big Bang and the ultimate fate of the universe and how stars are born and cycle through generation after generation. There are so many beautiful, wonderful, powerful questions that confront us as curious, inquisitive humans that we are, and that on balance— when we look at all the questions we can possibly investigate and all the possible lines of inquiry and all the things that we can possibly be curious about, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is one of those questions. It certainly is, and I would never be one to uh, put down or diminish someone else's curiosity. Uh, but we do not have unlimited resources, unlimited time, unlimited brain power to investigate these questions, and so we have to take the question of "Are we alone in the universe?" which is a very powerful, moving question, and put it in context with the other questions that are equally as powerful and equally as moving, and decide with our precious resources that we have available in astronomy, how much should should
1: we devote to this question? So so let me just stay with you for a moment longer, Paul. If I understand what you're saying, the the harm, if there's any harm that might be caused by in continuing the search for intelligent life would be a misallocation of resources relative to other things that could be done with those resources. Is that the crux of your argument?
2: Uh, Yeah, that's the crux of one of my arguments, is there's an opportunity cost to searching for extraterrestrial life. Uh, There's another argument that I'll probably present later, which focuses on the public harm due to false alarms of when we find signals or apparent evidence of extraterrestrial life, and we go out in the press and make a big deal about it, and it turns out it is not a signal, it is not a sign of intelligent life, ultimately that harms the relationship between scientists and the public.
1: All right, Jill, let me bring it back to you. And what, is the, what does the search involve now? What sorts of resources? And you've been involved in it for so long, Um and and for folks who don't know, I mean, you are a giant in this field, and um, everybody who saw the film Contact back in the late 90s about Jodie Foster uh, being involved in the search for intelligent life knows that you are a consultant on that film. Uh, you are highly, highly respected in this field, and obviously you're passionate about it. So there's probably nobody better equipped than you to tell us, how has that search been going? How is it financed? And then I'd like you to get to the question of the use of resources.
0: The resources that are being spent are minimal. Uh, They are within the means of some of our most um, wealthy individuals, and that's how it's being funded this year and for the past few decades. Um, We're talking about maybe spending $10 million a year. I think it's more like... kind of have the feeling $10 billion a week to, to support something like the James Webb Space Telescope, which will show us all of these wonders that that Paul has been talking about being interested in finding. But what what the wonderful telescopes that are on the books uh, or on, on the sky right now um, will tell us about is astrophysical phenomena. It won't tell us about whether there's any engineered phenomena out there. So we can make use of archival data from the astronomers' resources to try and look at a new way at that data um, to see if we can find some patterns that, that we don't think nature can produce. But in general, we have to build our own tools because we're looking for things that the astronomers are not looking for. And so $10 million a year seems to me like not an unreasonable investment. And if you asked me, well, what would I do with $100 billion or a $1 billion a year? I actually, I actually can't answer that question, because our ability to search is limited by the physics that we currently understand. I mean, maybe we should be looking for zeta rays, but I don't know what a zeta ray is. We haven't yet discovered it. We need to stick around long enough to get smart enough to figure out that that's a viable method of transferring information over the vast distances between the stars. So this is a modest program. I think it should be be, be, uh, remain modest because we can't promise results. We don't know the answer to the question. We may, in fact, be the only intelligent beings in the universe in spite of the very large numbers that might argue otherwise. There's there's a paper in the past few years written by the folks from the Institute for the Future over in in the UK, uh, which looks at the various factors of the drake equation which really isn't an equation it's just a way of organizing our ignorance but there is a factor that says what fraction of all the potentially habitable planets actually develop life and then go on to um, another fraction that says and of that set which go on to develop technology but that f sub L, the fraction that develop life, uh, when you do a literature study, you come up with, or the, the folks in the UK did, uh, come up with the fact that in the literature, there are 120 orders of magnitude, not just a factor of 120, but 120 factors of 10 um, estimates of what that fraction might be. So it's a huge unknown, lots of people working on it, uh, and I think that uh, this really drives our uh, association with the cosmos. Did what happened here happen somewhere else, or did something else somewhere else happen to produce a result that is uh, functionally equivalent and has the ability to communicate over large distances. So I'm, I really do think that we at, at the base of all of this is wondering how we fit in to the cosmos. We like to study and we're interested in nothing more than we're interested in ourselves. And we'd like to know whether we are singular or normal, above average. Below average, how do we fit into this cosmos?
1: More from Intelligence Squared US when we return. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't
2: get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions
1: that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder welcome back to intelligence squared u.s let's get back to our debate paul what, what what do you think paul in terms of the odds that there is other life out there other intelligent life out there
2: uh, first, I'd like to say, if there are any wealthy individuals listening to this program that have a spare $10 million per year... Do
0: you have a big enough question to answer?
2: Uh, well, the questions that I'm personally interested in are the nature of dark matter and dark energy and the ultimate fate of the universe, uh, which to me is a very large question. And any scientist, uh, not just astronomer, any scientist is going to be absolutely engrossed and fascinated by by their particular curiosity, and their question will be gigantic to them because that's what they are passionate about. Um, In terms of odds of are we alone, the the real answer is, as Dr. Tartar mentioned, we don't know. We do not know. All the evidence we have so far says that we are alone, but we have not searched a lot. But we honestly don't know. And so the question becomes, this isn't the first year of SETI. This isn't the second year. This isn't the second decade or the third decade of SETI. In all these searches for extraterrestrial intelligences that are capable of communicating with us, we have to ask, what have we learned? Yeah, it's only $10 million a year, but that, that's small for astronomy or government grants, but, it, but it's large for me. It's not zero, And it is money that could have gone somewhere else. And so in these decades, in half a century of SETI, what have we learned? Have we put constraints on any of those parameters in the Drake equation through SETI research? Have we start to put probabilities and hard numbers? Have we approached a better understanding of the universe? Or have we come to the same conclusion year after year, which is, it appears that we are alone. So, Paul,
0: when SETI turned 50, more than a decade ago, um, I did a calculation and that said, all right, what is the uh, volume of phase space that we're trying to search where we might find evidence of um, information being transmitted between the stars? And I said that that was a nine-dimensional volume. Let me see if I can remember. (laughs) So three dimensions of space, one dimension of time, two senses of polarization, um, an unknown modulation scheme, and finally, we don't know how sensitive we need to be because we don't know if there is some evidence, how strong it is and how far away it is. So those nine dimensions. And then I... uh, said, okay, I'm no good at nine-dimensional visualization, so let me um, make an analog and say the total volume that we might have to search um, in those nine dimensions is equal to the volume of all the Earth's oceans, right? I I can visualize that. And so how much in the decades that you've spoken about, how much have we searched? And the answer was... Uh, when SETI turned 50, it was one glass of water out of all the Earth's oceans. Ten years later, students at Penn State redid did this calculation. It was more like a small hot tub, mainly because our computing is getting so much better and faster. But I would claim that um, that's too little an effort to make any large, grand conclusions, and that there's a lot more searching to be done. And of course, that searching will get better and faster, mainly because of two things, continued advance in computing capability and the introduction of machine learning. So in the past, we've taken data, which has normally been voltage output as a function of time coming out of a radio telescope, and we've asked of that data, does this pattern or that pattern, exists in the data. Now, with machine learning, we can think about simply asking, um, not for specific patterns, but if there's any information content in that data. So I'm excited about those new possibilities. And um, I think that there is a lot
2: more to be explored. Paul? I think you're I completely agree that the volume of the search space of the possibilities of intercepting a signal are enormous but I think that's a detriment because then we have to ask is this meager amount only 10 million dollars a year is that sufficient funds to ever Search through this space of possible signals to such a degree that we can come up with a satisfactory answer or even some constraints. And if the answer is no, we need a lot more money, we need a hundred million, we need a billion dollars a year in order to even attempt to answer this question in the next few decades, um, then we do need to allocate serious resources to this. Uh, but if we're only going to allocate relatively minimal amounts of resources, then how could we ever hope to satisfactorily search that space and get an answer? We could spend a hundred years, a thousand years searching for possible signals and not find anything because we're not spending enough resources. So if we want to do it, uh, we have to do it right, which means spending a lot more money than we are.
0: Actually, I, I,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm happy to spend more money,
0: but I don't actually (laughs) think that's the way to think about it. I think that what's going to happen in a decade or a hundred years or a thousand years is that we are going to understand the universe better. We are going to develop new ways of explaining the properties of the physical universe. And given that uh, we will have a better feeling for what is non-physical in what we might be uh, discovering with our new tools and technologies? So I think that um, because we can't we, we can't promise an answer, right? And the answer might be an unsatisfying no, we are in fact alone. But that's such an important question that I don't think we should, make any such conclusion until we have expanded uh, resources and time and talent sufficient to warrant making a big decision like that.
1: Jill, when, when is when is it a no? When, when do you know that the search has been fruitless?
0: Uh, when you can no longer convince folks to fund it, right? When you've just reached the end of people's Ability to become to be interested and to decide that it's worth doing, right? Or, or you in fact find a yes as an answer.
1: But if you're if if we're already in a world where people are struggling over resources and there are, you know, let's just talk in terms of um, if you run out of private funders, would the government be there when? resources are needed increasingly for so many other things, and we're aware of not having sufficient funds for it. Uh, Is is it likely that that day, that that no, it's not worth it, is going to come sooner than later?
0: I think that universities found a, a good answer to this problem a long time ago, and that's called an endowment. And so you raise a significant amount of funds and you invest it and spend only a bit of the income from that investment each year. So you can look forward to having a secure source of funding into the far future, and you work off of that amount of uh, resource, and you plan for it. And this actually makes it a bit easier to recruit the best and the brightest, right? Because when you talk to some young uh, scientist or engineer and you say, come work on this problem, and they say, well, you know, I'm not sure I want to work on something that might not pay off in my professional career lifetime. um, That's a hard sell, but there are a class of people like myself who think that this is important enough to work on. But then if you have a second hurdle which says oh and you know maybe I can't make budget I can't make payroll next month that makes it a really difficult sell but I think an endowment uh, for this purpose is a very good way to continue such a possibly low probability but high payoff form of exploration
2: Um, there are the the question of are we alone in the universe uh, contains within it the question, it, did life appear on other places than the surface of the Earth? And that is a... a an equally big question, an equally fascinating and powerful question, and a question that a lot of astronomers have devoted their careers to, a a generational research on this problem. And at first glance, it appears to be a more promising avenue for scientific investigation. Because Presumably, this is just a guess, that intelligent life is more rare than regular life uh, for various reasons. Again, this is just based on supposition. We only have our one example here. But we can dig up the soil on Mars. We can crack open the ice shells of the outer moons in the solar system. We can hunt for signatures of of biology in the atmospheres of other planets. And in SETI, there's a lot of talk about detectability and sending out radio signals or building uh, megastructures or giving off some sign that we are here and we are intelligent. But regular life is perfectly capable of giving off its own signals that are detectable because it can throw its environment out of equilibrium. For example, two billion years ago, the Earth's atmosphere had relatively little oxygen in it. But then once photosynthesis got really going, it's filled our atmosphere with oxygen to a detectable level. If there is another intelligent species out there in the galaxy and they have figured out things like telescopes and atomic spectra and their own version of the James Webb Space Telescope and etc., then just looking at the atmosphere of the earth they have known that there is life on the earth for over 2 billion years that is detectable over long time scales and that is in fact one of the goals of the james webb space telescope and future follow-up missions is to hunt for signs of life in alien atmospheres and so There is a large search space there, but it's very well constrained and we know exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for biosignatures. And so it seems much more likely in our lifetimes that we will find evidence for life because it's much more easily detectable. And so... If SETI in future SETI searches need to rely on understanding new physics or potential new technosignatures, that seems more like an argument for funding the new physics and studying new physics and new engineering rather than funding SETI. And in the meantime, we search for life of any
1: kind. So, so you know, in a sense, you're saying that we could be searching for planet of the mushrooms or planet of the ferns, something like that, that, that would not be intelligent but would be sending out a signal that there's life there. It's way less sexy than finding intelligent life, at least to me, but I, I'm wondering, Jill, how do, how would you feel about the, the search for, for life more generally becoming the focus rather than intelligent life?
0: No, I wouldn't want it to become the only focus, right? I'm a huge fan of looking for life, but Paul, here's the question. How far away can you find that, right? Not how many how many planet, exoplanetary atmospheres is James Webb actually going to be able to explore? There's no gain in that signal, right? But if you're looking for engineered signals, then you can expect that the engineers at the other end of that communication channel will have put gain in it because they want That to be detectable over what what do you mean
1: by putting gain in it? What does that term mean?
0: (laughs) I'm sorry. That means that you uh, put a lot more energy into the transmission that you're making, that you're creating artificially, than um, you would need to be able to be heard just within your solar system. You actually generate some kind of signal that is detectable over the vast distances between the stars and not just the handful of stars around our location in the galaxy whose atmospheres we could explore spectroscopically. So you want to have whatever you do be detectable over a much larger volume of the galaxy than we can currently explore for life.
1: So Jill, I, I assume when you're talking about engineered signals, you, you mean something analogous to, you know, if, if, if I'm walking through the woods and there are some pebbles scattered around, that's one thing. But if I'm walking through the woods and I see 10 stones stacked on top of each other, that tells me that somebody was there. Somebody did that. And it sounds as though what you're saying you're searching for are signals in space that have that signature of somebody having done it on purpose, sent something out there on purpose. Am I right about that?
0: Yes, that is the easiest thing to find. You could also be looking for things that are almost astrophysical. So uh, someone who takes a variable star with a very discrete period and has the ability to orbit some... Energy source around that star. And the star varies, period, its luminosity varies periodically because the star expands and gets brighter and then contracts and gets cooler. But if you have the ability, so as the star is in its cool phase and thinking about getting ready to expand on this normal period, you zap it with some energy and cause it to expand prematurely. Now you have created a Morse code, a a normal long period and a shorter uh, artificial period. So you have a dash and a dot, and uh, these variable stars are visible throughout the galaxy and actually into the nearest clusters of galaxies. So you might have done that kind of thing, which is almost astrophysical which the kinds of things that Paul wants to explore would eventually pick it up. And some graduate student looking at um, data in some huge archive might say, huh, what's this? Or you could have a, um, a pulsar, right? A rotating neutron star whose magnetic axis and rotational axis are misaligned and as it rotates around, if we're in the line of sight, every time the beam comes around, it gives us a pulse. Right. So you could take and make an artificial pulsar. Now, the pulse goes from its normal period to a different period. And, and we've seen that in pulsars because there are starquakes that uh, change the uh, center of mass Of the rotating body and its period. But what we've never seen is a pulsar that goes from one period to a second period and then back to the first. But you could do that with technology. So there are lots of things that we could look for, and over a much larger volume of the galaxy than we are able to explore for uh, chemical anomalies in the atmospheres of exoplanets because of life.
1: More from Intelligence Squared U.S. when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our discussion.
2: So in that volume with present-day technology, Yes, we are searching a smaller volume, but our stakes are also much lower. You, If intelligent life is rarer than non-intelligent life, then you need the larger volume to go out and find the intelligent life because... It's more unlikely for it to be close to you. But if the stakes are lower, if we're just searching for any kind of life, then we can have a smaller volume and still increase our odds of success because we have so many planets accessible to us within a few thousand light years. And even in our own solar system, there is liquid water in, in the icy moons of the outer planets liquid water. They might be homes for life right in our backyard. And all we have to do is send a probe over to check it out. And so the search space is much more promising. Uh, but when it comes to techno signatures, these manufactured technological signs of intelligence, there was one particular incident a few years ago where a graduate student studying some Kepler data found a star that had a very interesting light curve. It would get brighter and dimmer and brighter very suddenly and very irregularly. And some SETI astronomers proposed that this was a technosignature, that there was some megastructure orbiting that star that was blocking out the light as it orbited that star. This, as you might imagine, created a lot of interest, a lot of public discussion. It turned out it was just dust. I distinctly remember sitting in the journal club of my astronomy department at the Ohio State University, where I was at the time, and when this uh, these papers came out, uh, we discussed it, and uh, the astronomers in the room said, oh, it's, it's just probably dust, because dust you can blame on 99% of your problems in astronomy. And it turned out to be dust. But in the meantime... A lot of people, a lot of the public, believed that we had found signs of extraterrestrial life, and we had found evidence for technological civilizations.
1: Uh, Jill, I, I want to understand something about the, the kinds of distances that we're talking about, and 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 the, the the possibility that if if there are signals that are being sent deliberately or accidentally from intelligent civilizations elsewhere, that. Those civilizations are long gone. That you know, I, I I look at you know our just experience on Earth. Um, we're out of sync with the the Maya civilization, for example, in 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 southern Mexico had its heyday fifteen hundred to two thousand years ago. We we missed uh, in terms of time. They were simultaneous with the Roman Empire, but they had a distance problem. But we have a dis a time problem with the Roman Empire. We're out of we're out of sync with them, and I would imagine that. If there's, if, if there's a civilization sending a signal that was sent 2,000 years ago, you know, there fairly good chances that that civilization doesn't exist anymore. And what do you do with that fact?
0: Well, um, think about the fact that it's not the longevity of the civilization that comes into this equation, but the longevity of the technology. Uh, we still make glass the same way the Romans made it. That technology has outlived the civilization that created we have satellites, Lagios satellites, in orbit around the planet that will be there for millions of years, right? Um, they may well outlive us. And so the I did say that the temporal was one of the dimensions, the nine dimensions of space that we have to
1: right, search
0: right. through. But it is possible that technologies can be lots longer lived than anything that we have experienced so far in terms of life on this planet.
1: But after a 2,000-year journey, even the technology may have collapsed or deteriorated in some form.
0: Well, the the technologists may no longer be there, right? But you actually learn that at one time, or you infer Mm -hmm. at one time, there were technologists that did create that technology. So you do answer part of the question.
1: Paul, you mentioned that there are a lot of planets that are potentially habitable in terms of the, the water being out there, et cetera. Um, and one of the reasons that I think that this search for life goes on in a very, very broad sense, and Jill alluded to this in the beginning, is that um, we we may we may need some sort of rescue one way or another. Now, her argument was, the rescue will come from all of us recognizing our common humanity and all of us getting on the same team but there's also always talk of can we get off this planet and go somewhere else and with with so many habitable planets out there does the search for life is the search for life at least justified by the idea of there being some sort of life raft out there for us unfortunately
2: the universe is a very big place the distances between stars are unfathomably um, enormous. We can write them down, and we can say the numbers out loud. The next nearest star is about four light years away. That doesn't communicate truly how far away that star is, how far away Proxima Centauri is. The distances between stars and the energy needed to travel among the stars is so great and so vast That even if we were to detect a habitable world within, say, 100 light years, the amount of energy and technological sophistication and sheer dumb luck it would take to actually even send a tiny little spacecraft there is beyond even reasonable projections of our technological progress— the universe is a big place. And I believe, I personally believe this is based on no scientific evidence whatsoever, that we are not alone in the universe. The universe is a large place, and that there are probably other intelligent critters maybe having their own debate right now on their own radio show. Uh, but the universe is so big that we are effectively alone. And our planet, it really is the only option. There is
1: no planet B. That's another great joke. Thank you. The conditions the 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 odds are that the conditions for life are decent enough that there should be other other there should be other life and there should potentially also be other intelligent life and yet so far zilch in terms of real results. And there there was an, in fact it was the conclusion of um of a study done by Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute basically made that argument and, and and it's they were focusing on what's called the Fermi paradox which basically makes that point like where where, where is everybody if if there if the odds are out there for there to be life we should have found it by now we should have seen signals by now the the universe should be teeming with such signals and th- that seems, Jill, often to be raised as a challenge to to your argument, so I'd like you to take that on.
0: Yeah, well, those are the same guys that showed that if you think about the factor in the Drake equation, the fraction of potentially habitable worlds where life actually starts, uh, in the literature there are 120 orders of magnitude, different estimates for that factor. So it's, it's really unknown. Uh, I think that... Uh, Again I go back to this having searched um, a hot tub's worth of water out of an ocean of the Earth's oceans we just really haven't looked and we're we don't really yet understand how life could be different than all life as we know it so I used to argue that uh, we wouldn't be able, to tease out from the biology that we know what is necessary for life versus what is just contingent in the way it happened here. But this whole new field of synthetic biology in the laboratory, I think might give us a handle on that problem. I used to say we'd have to find a second example of biology in order to to decide what was necessary versus what's contingent. But laboratory synthetic biology may help us to understand and then um, allow us to imagine life as we don't know it, life living in environments that we all learned as students would be totally sterile, right? And we've expanded our concepts of where life can life as we know it can thrive because of this whole um, new science of extremophiles, life living in places that you and I couldn't tolerate for at all.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point, Paul, that, that when we're looking for life, we send, tend to be, you know, we've already talked about water. Well, we need water, so that, that makes sense to us that life needs water, but could there not be life out there that doesn't need water? and that doesn't need oxygen, and that has some other some other functioning system. And therefore, the searching for life in the way that you're talking about it might turn up some kinds of life, but we might be missing other kinds of life.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, who knows what wild varieties of life are possible and out there in the universe? And that is such a fun, such an engaging question. It also doesn't have anything to do with SETI for the search for intelligent life. This is just us exploring the universe and asking grand questions and having a great time. Uh, We focus on search for Earth-like life because we know what we're looking for. There is a success condition. If we see an atmosphere that looks like the Earth's, we have a high degree of of certainty that we have found a habitable world because we know what it looks like. But if you broaden the search too much to any kind of life or any kind of signal or any kind of sign, then the search is so broad and the space is so enormous that you don't know if you'll ever succeed, and you don't know if you've already succeeded in the past because you've looked it over. So by constraining our answers and limiting our focus, we know when we get the right answer. And that's actually a big bonus rather than a detriment.
0: Actually, I think that that I would argue the opposite, that that's a source of ambiguity, right? Um, my, my, I guess my most recent example would be the claim that we had found phosphine in the clouds of, cloud layers of Venus. And at least on Earth, all production of phosphine requires biology, right? It's biologically mediated. Well, it turned out it was a single line identification, wrong molecule. It's probably SO2 rather than phosphine. Uh, but there's a lot of ambiguity uh, in the search for biosignatures. Perhaps there would be less ambiguity if you're looking for something that's obviously engineered.
1: Jill, when the day comes in your lifetime that an unambiguous signal is discovered from from space, pointing unambiguously to intelligent life, what changes? What, and what changes for you?
0: Oh, well, I think everything changes, right? We now have a new way of viewing ourselves in a new context. And I think it will change philosophy. It may change some religions. It will certainly encourage us to build tools for scientific exploration that can find other examples. Somebody, some source, something telling us what we should believe about some subject. Science is about exploration to find out what is. And so in philosophy, there has been a millennial uh, cyclical argument about the plurality of worlds, right? And it's, uh, you know, whoever's on top gets to tell you what you should think about that. And I, I find it totally unsatisfactory. So if we were to detect evidence of someone else's technology, then we would get into philosophical questions about, is their God the same as our God, right? And it's, uh, uh, I'm not a philosopher. You can see I don't have a lot of, um, empathy for that approach to trying to understand the universe we live in
1: but what would be the implication do you think for our self perception if we learned that you know after after several millennia of considering ourselves kind of top of the food chain top of the process of of development of of life on this planet that in the universe somebody's doing way better than we are in terms of sophistication and intelligence and technology, that they're better, they're stronger, they're faster, and we're not the king of the hill.
0: Yeah, I think what we learned there is that it's possible to have a long future, because I don't know how another technological civilization gets to make the progress that you're alluding to and that they can do things far better than we are. If they're not older. And so I think that um, learning that there is someone who's made it through this technological um, adolescence, that stage that we find ourselves in, is hopeful because even if they don't tell us how to do it, the fact that they exist is a proof of of the fact that it is possible to get there and we have to figure it out. So I take that all as hopeful.
1: Okay. And Paul, I want to give you the last word. Any final thought on this? I think the search for,
2: or the question of, are we alone in the universe is a powerful question. It is a beautiful question. And like I said at the beginning, I would never, ever tell someone not to follow their curiosity because that is at the heart of science and the heart of philosophy and the heart of humanity. Um, But we are surrounded by questions. We are surrounded by a universe that we do not understand. And there are other, many more, other powerful, other beautiful questions that we can ask and we can inquire about. And I wish we had, as scientists, infinite money and infinite resources so that we could pursue every question uh, that comes into our hearts and into our minds. That would be wonderful. Uh, But we don't. Astronomy does not have enormous amounts of funding compared to other avenues of science and certainly not compared to, say, overall federal budgets. So we do have to decide what we do with our limited resources. We do have to decide what we want to investigate. What is the most promising avenues for uh, success, for learning about these universe? How do we balance all these thousands of astronomers with their individual burning questions uh, that, that keep them up at, at night and that makes them want to show up day after day after day to their laboratories or their chalkboards or their observatories? And... The search for extraterrestrial intelligence can certainly come into that discussion, of course. But ultimately, we need to balance it against everything else we want to know about the universe.
1: All right, Paul Sutter and Jill Tarter, thank you so much for joining us to discuss and debate the question of whether we should be searching for life in space. We really appreciated having you on Agree to Disagree. Thank you so much.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: And I'm John Donvan. We will see you next time. And the conversation you just heard perfectly captures why we do this. You you know how discourse happens these days in our culture. It is pretty broken. And it's why it is so refreshing but also unusual to hear two people who disagree about something actually be able to converse civilly and rationally and explain things and shed light and not just blow smoke. And we know from so many of you, that's exactly why you listen to our programs and why I would like to remind you that as you turn to us for that, we turn to you for support because we are a nonprofit and it's contributions from listeners like you that keep us going. So please consider sending us a buck or two or 10 or 50, whatever you can handle, whatever works. And that'll give you a stake in what we're doing here each week. And it will mean that we are here next week and beyond that. Thanks so much. Once again, I'm John Donvan and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund as a nonprofit. Our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and Friends of Intelligence Squared. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman, Clea Connor is CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Julia Melfi, Shea O'Mara, and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time.